Welcome to Season 12 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. Before we get started with our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal people, the traditional custodians of this land on which I'm recording, and pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land. Today I have the great pleasure of sharing a recent conversation that I had with the amazing Dr Paul Kitson. Paul is the New South Wales Branch President of the Australian College of Educational Leaders. He is also a Senior Lecturer in Educational Leadership at the Australian Catholic University. His teaching and research explores how school leaders work within and critically transform their professional lives. In this fascinating conversation, we talked about delusions of grandeur, understanding the human condition, and caring for ourselves so that we can care for those entrusted to us. I hope that you get as much out of this wide-ranging conversation as I did. Please enjoy. Dr. Paul Kitson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks uh, thanks so much for joining me. Where are you phoning in from? Uh, I live on the south coast of New South Wales, just a little bit uh, out of Sydney. Uh, if, you, if you know where Sydney is, go down south to Wollongong, go down south a little bit further, and I live in a beautiful seaside uh, community called Kiama. Lovely. We were just down there last weekend. We did a bit of a... Um bit of a mini escape our family and I so uh spent the weekend in Kiama it is a beautiful part of the world and very hard to come back up that hill up Mount Oosley Hill <laughs> it's it's one of the given the context of our uh, um listeners it is one of the highest local government area concentrations of teachers or retired teachers Fantastic. in the country of Australia yeah. I don't know why that is, but uh, we we happen to just congregate here. And uh, given that you were here recently, you can probably appreciate why. Amazing. And quite possibly the most uh, important uh, question, Paul, for our conversation, what's your coffee order for when I can finally go back to Kiama and buy your coffee? Yeah, one or two. Uh, if uh, if it's at home, it'll be a double shot espresso. Right. Uh, just straight out of the machine. Or if I'm out and about, it might be a, a small flat white with an extra shot. Lovely. That is my coffee order. Strong, flat white. In fact, uh, my daughter, my four-year-old came to me this morning. She woke me up and she's got a little tea set and she said, Daddy, a strong, flat white. And I thought, wow, she really is. uh, She really is listening to everything I say. Well, that's a credit to your parenting skills right there, Matt. That's right. And uh, Paul, is there a book that has uh, caused you uh, to stop and reconsider a few things in your life? It could be within your sphere in education or it could, could be more broadly than that. But yeah, any recommendations or books? Yeah, it's it, it's probably not the uh, emotional high point that you might be looking for, Matt. But C.S. Lewis's "A Grief Observed" right was one of those profound moments. Um, my wife and I had the experience of going through one of our best friends being tragically killed when she was only twenty three. Gosh. And uh, her family, who we were very close with, gave us the privilege of going and. Um, taking from her library um, books that we felt, you know, w- w- would be uh, reminiscent 
of her life. Yeah. And when we found that, uh, we thought, oh, well, you know, th- that sounds okay. I- I've been a great fan of C.S. Lewis's for many, many years. Yes. But the story of A Grief Observed is his own journey of processing grief at the loss of the wife, uh, of the life of his own wife. Gosh. And it's it's one of the most, I think from memory, Matt, it's about, you know, 80 pages, 90 pages long, a wow. very, very dense, wow. um, highly argued case for, uh, you know, how to process grief. And, you know, I, I came from a background where my life had actually been relatively comfortable and relatively straightforward. And when we ran into this moment, that was really confronting, existentially Gosh. confronting. Gosh. And to have someone of both the intellectual and, and uh, you know, that kind of faith context of C.S. Lewis say, you know, I'm actually really, really angry about this. I don't understand what this means, was Gosh. both a great relief and also a challenge for the kind of, um, you know, young adult that I was trying to navigate and explore a world where easy answers don't necessarily flow. Wow, that's um, that's really that's really powerful, Paul. I'll I'll, I'll definitely add that to my uh, my reading list. I, are you an audio book reader or a physical book reader, or a bit of? I love reading? physical books. I love the notion. My wife says to me, uh, I'm I'm privileged to have, uh, you know, a modest library, and she says to me, "How many books do you actually need?" And my consistent <laughs> response, Matt, is more. That's right. Um, the notion of opening a book. Uh, the tactile nature of it, the smell, uh, the experience of, of snuggling down and being lost from the demands of the day into another world. Um, I, I read obviously a lot of material for my work, but I also read an enormous array of uh, eclectic readings. Yeah. And regardless of where I'm, I'm taken, um, I don't read a lot of novels, I have to be honest. Um, they're not my, my big thing and I've tried to commit to reading challenging work because I want to be confronted and I want to be extended and I want to be challenged intellectually. Um, and one of those, if, if, if I can give an, uh, an, an unsolicited recommendation, the last uh, novel by Christos Shulkus, uh, Damascus, uh, the story about the uh, uh, my apostolic namesake, St Paul, um, it's really confronting. Wow. And it's really visceral and it's wow. really... Um, uh engaging but it's not for the light-hearted and yeah. so therefore one of the things that i love about books is that that disconnect into other worlds that you then come back and have to assimilate back into what does this mean for me now in here and what i'm looking at and what i'm dealing with in my own life yeah i'll um i'll definitely put a link to those some of those recommendations and um, paul in the show notes um i tend to uh, out of every conversation I get to have with amazing, amazing educators such as yourself, I, I tend to have a recommendation of between three to five books that I have to purchase. Um, I think I've got about 45 in my um, online shopping cart. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if my budget will quite allow me to purchase that many. But um, it's it, it's interesting, isn't it? And I love that notion um, that you said that you read things that really challenge you because I think we can all be guilty of reading things that reinforce our own particular opinion and do you think it's important to to continue to do that to to stretch yourself and to read things that are not only um outside of your um sphere of expertise but also literature that really challenges some of your assumptions is that something which you sort of seek out intentionally yeah i, I do and i, and I want to give a shout out 
out to a great mentor of mine. Um, he gave me this wonderful insight early on in my career. And he said, when you come across people, because everybody's got their own vision of a good life and, yeah. and, and yeah. what we're trying to pursue. And sometimes they're confronting. Um, and I'll put a bit of a caveat. Some of them actually need to be um, dismissed. They're actually yeah. so reprehensible. They ought to be dismissed, right? Yes. But by and large, there's a whole bunch of other ones that, while they're not mine, are also legitimate. And he said to me, I don't like that person. Wow. You should get to know them. Right. And I, I think when other people have a view of the world that is different than mine, yeah, uh, there's a there's a, um, a value in trying to understand what is it in your vision of the world yeah. that I'm missing, that I'm, I'm not understanding. Yeah. Uh, you know, for the sake of your listeners, uh, you and I were chatting just prior to us recording about the International Baccalaureate. Um, we've been in schools where that's been a, a framework. And one of the things that I love about the International Baccalaureate's learner profile, um, sorry, its mission statement is the notion that other people with their view may also be right. Yeah, yeah. And that that's a really powerful wow. acknowledgement yeah. that what my vision and understanding and experience of the world is 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 great but that. others will have a different one and that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that it's a, a, either a lower yeah. standard or it's, yeah. it, it's it's compromised there there could be insights that i'm not getting by failing to engage with that and that's where i think that's what you get from being broadly read yeah, I, I love that. And even I, I believe it's uh, uh, Jim Collins, I think, or it could be another author, but that idea of seeking first to understand. Um, mm. And I think that is a, not only is that great marriage and parenting advice, but I think it's also great um, professional advice to actually sit with someone or to sit in an opinion that you don't um, understand um, and, and to try and kind of work through that. I think that's an incredibly important and my um wonderful wife is she's um uh, she did a master's in creative writing and so we are our house is full of uh, all of this uh type of wonderful fiction and she's been forever um encouraging me slash pressuring me to to read more fiction because of that because it really encourages you i think or shows you a different worldview and so uh that's definitely something that i'm trying to do a little bit more of but uh there's all there's always too many books though and not enough time uh which is which is particularly challenging, but uh, you've encouraged me to keep uh, keep pursuing that. Well, let me give you a further encouragement from the great Umberto Eco. Umberto Eco was reported to have had a personal library of in excess of 30,000 volumes. And when he was critiqued for saying you can't possibly have read all of those, why would you have such a large personal library? Um, his response was, it's a continual reminder of the wow. fact that regardless of how much I know, there is always so much more that I'm never going to be able to know. Lovely. And that instituted for him what he called intellectual humility. Wow. The fact wow. That there are other ideas that I still am yet to discover and understand. And that. that means that I shouldn't actually be too strident and, and bold in necessarily positioning myself uh, with wow. the way that I understand ideas. Wow. I love that. I'm currently uh, making my way uh, through um, Sherlock Holmes again, uh, but um, narrated uh, by Stephen Fry. Um, oh. But I have to, I have to be careful because I can't listen to that book while driving because I get sort of lost in his uh, 
tones uh but uh paul i could uh, honestly i could spend this whole podcast talking to you about book recommendations and I'm sure, uh, <laughs> we, we, we will do a round two uh but i was just wondering um what was your upbringing like and what are you most grateful for from your family a, a great question matt um I, I think look I, I had a very um very suburban um white anglo-saxon uh kind of upbringing and in in many regards i, I grew up in the um for those of your listeners who understand this reference the sutherland shire of sydney yeah. uh, and so i had a very cloistered life in many regards yet i did have uh a, a mother and father who were um you know deeply grounded in a vision of a religious experience of life um, and that was important. We had a very cultured and, and musical background. My mother was a piano player. And so we used to have, you know, Saturday nights sit around the piano and, and you know, sing songs and, and various things like that. I don't think I appreciated that at the time. Yeah. Um, and now I look back on it with great fondness. Wow. Uh, I think one of the other things that I was privileged to do is uh, I, I had the opportunity to go to a... Um, you know, what we would now call kind of like a selective school. And uh, that in, in the 1970s, they were doing a lot of what we would now call inquiry-based learning. And there are real contestations about the value otherwise of inquiry-based learning. Um, but for me as a, as a, a 10, 11-year-old boy, I just kind of went, wow, this is just extraordinary. I get to, you know, I'm, I'm not sitting in a class just doing the thing that everybody else is doing we're doing these you know extraordinarily rich learning experiences um and and, and that was that was great i think you know i uh, i also needed to break out of that i also needed to realize uh and i think that happened in, in my late teens you know early 20s that the experiences that i had are not the experiences that everybody has and i think that's an important acknowledgement that whatever our upbringing is yeah it is our upbringing it is not normative yeah it is our personal and subjective experience yeah and when you start to realize and i don't think i realized some of this matt until you know probably when i was in my late 30s uh, sorry late 20s early 30s i moved into regional australia mm. and I, I moved into communities who had fundamentally different um expectations and desires and aspirations that that living I, mean, I had a a very very sydney centric worldview um and while that's got some richness it's also got some serious limitations about it yeah. um, and it is not the way that that everybody ought to be or should be yeah yeah uh, look I, I live in the heart of the sutherland shire in sutherland um and uh i i while it is a wonderful place to live um i, I am very aware and we we're having a conversation before we hit record um i've worked in some schools where that type of um uh, so the type of upbringing that i have had is not normal um mm -hmm. and so for me the best thing i think i've ever done professionally um is to go to an environment that is really different to my own experience and really yeah. challenge myself um is there something paul that you have changed your mind about in terms of education is there an assumption that you uh once held that you no longer hold as true well no longer hold as true can i just make a, a kind of caveat of that yeah. may not necessarily be true for everybody in a normative sense yes um i 
did have the joy and, and privilege of being in some schools that were quite highly resourced, uh, both as a student and as a teacher. And then I've also been in schools that are in very seriously uh, socioeconomically challenged environments. I think one of the things that I've realised is that um, when you when you assume that you have to have all those trappings, they are the things that we think are the co constituent elements of what a rich experience is like. I don't believe that anymore. You know, they are an experience. Yeah. They're not necessarily the benchmark experience. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, being so, able to, you know, walk into, and, and I say this, to, you know, in my role, I do a lot of work with school leaders, but I've also done quite a bit of work with um, initial teacher education students. And one of the things I say to them is go to a regional area, go to a rural area, because the dynamic, the community dynamic that you have there is fundamentally different. You know, when you when you can't walk into a supermarket without seeing somebody from your community, your school community, and it's not like in a, a metropolitan area where I can do my work and then I drive 40 minutes home and, and on the weekend I won't come in contact with any of the students or or staff that I work with. But when you live in a small community, you know, the, the, I was the principal of a school um, in a community that had about 15,000 people. You couldn't go anywhere without running into somebody that you were connected with through the school community. That's a richness Wow. that I think is valued for me much more so than I thought mm. when I was younger. You know, there was a sense in which this is a great job to do. It's a very, um, I love education. I love teaching. I, I said to the business manager at the first school where I was appointed, I can't believe I get paid to do this. Um, to which his response was, I can rectify that for you if you'd like. Yeah, and I went. No, no, no. I, I, I want to get paid. Yes, um, but you know the the notion that you are part of not just a job, but you're part of a, a lived community. That's a richness that I don't think I really appreciated for. Um, I want to say maybe about the first ten or twelve years of my career. Yeah, and and how do you think that um sort of has impacted how you um now relate to to schools and schools community school communities? Because I mean um. Obviously, having that experience in quite an affluent area growing up and then moving to the country and now being back in a, um, a, a relatively monocultural part of Sydney, which is what Kayama is, um, how has that sort of impacted the way that you, like I said, respond to schools and school communities? Has it given you more empathy and understanding? Has it given you more perspective? Or, or, or what lessons do you kind of draw from that to your, to, to your current role? So th there's a, a few things, um, Matt. The first one is that there's an assumption sometimes that if you are socioeconomically resourced, um, life is great. And the first response to that is money doesn't actually give you class or character. Uh, you know, no, no social class is bereft of being generous or is bereft of being appalling to one another. And so the great leveller is the human condition, which is that we, we are all struggling to make sense of what is a meaningful life. Yeah, We're all struggling to find something that brings us satisfaction. We're all struggling to find ways in which we particularly find uh, to flourish. 
Yeah. Um, and there are some different capacities that people are gifted with to be able to do that. Mm. And, and if I've got a lot of resources, then some of the things that I can do um, are, are very different than if I don't have those resources. But there's this assumption that if I don't have the resources, what I'm finding to do is is less valuable. Yeah. And I think that's a seriously um, deleterious view of both life and and yes. resorting that we have. Yeah. So you know, I, I think uh, as as you look beyond, scratch the surface, and you find in well resourced communities some pretty appalling things. Yeah. And you find in less resourced communities some really rich and extraordinary things. Yeah. It's the lens that you're applying to when you look for it. Yeah. And in the end, the lens that I've tried to apply in all of my work is where is the humanity in this? Where is the sense of purpose and the sense of meaning? Mm. And in my own life uh, and in the work that I do, the notion of being has become far more significant than doing. Yeah. Would you mind unpacking that a little bit, Paul? Um, yeah. When you say the, um, how do you uh, define the notion of being as opposed to the notion of doing? I think it's a really interesting point that you've raised. Everybody will have, consciously or subconsciously, a vision of what they think is a satisfying life. Mm. Now, if they have that, the next question that flows from that is, are they in pursuit of it? Mm. And that's where there's a real uh, challenging moment because a lot of people have a vision of a life that they don't feel that they're actually succeeding and achieving. Mm. But they have that vision yeah. to start with. Um, I am um, humbled and privileged to have had a career that's had some enormous highlights, uh, some deep valleys to walk through. But early on... You know, I, I thought and I was encouraged and I was mentored and I was coached and I was supported by by colleagues and, and leaders that I worked for to climb the tree, to assume a sense of, you know, seniority, of, of rising up through the ranks. Uh, and on paper, you know, you could look at some things and go, well, you know, that's that's an interesting sort of career. And yet that's actually not what's become more significant to me. Right. My wife, when I was a principal, I was a principal for 11 and a half years, Matt. Wow. And I would be involved in busy, big, busy schools doing a lot of things and I would go to things and I'd have the challenges of, of trying to manage my personal life, my family life and my school commitments. And my wife would stop me and say, who's going to be at your funeral? And I found that such a confronting, challenging comment. Wow. Because I would sometimes feel that the people who I'm most close to, my wife, my children, my family, would end up in some regard dealing with some of the crumbs from my table. Mm. Whereas people with whom, let's be really honest, I had a transactional relationship with, yeah. would be getting elements that were the best of me. Yeah. that were most of the energy that I had and those who loved me and cared for me most would often get what was left over. True. That has been a profound challenge for me and I, you know, quite happy to say to you, your listeners here, I regret some of those decisions that I made yeah. because I put in front of those who have committed their life to loving me some of those people who, if I did the wrong thing, then they'd come 
plane. Uh, and when I left, they'd get another one. They'd replace me pretty rapidly. And yeah. so, you know, that that Just sense of that sense of the doing that I've, I've got to be doing these things because it shows that this is important and it shows that this is, you know, I can do it. And yet it's this issue of the being. It's this issue of who am I when I'm stripped bare of wow. those um, uh, trappings. Wow. Uh, there's a terrific, you want another book recommendation? Here's one. Um, John Ray, uh, formerly uh, headmaster of Taunton School and then Westminster School right next to the Abbey in London. Uh, and his one of his memoirs, Delusions of Grandeur. That's um, come up a few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it, it's a great story about saying, you know, sometimes, and especially for those of us in leadership roles, the privilege that we have is we believe our own publicity. Yeah. And that's become much more significant for me. There's Paul, there is so much in that. Like that is a whole podcast series in it in of itself. And I think you you touched on a number of really important points. And I, and I think it it's a reminder just how much of our identity we um we can get from our profession. And mm. while it is an absolute privilege to get to stand in front of a group of school leaders and students every single day, um it's really important, I think, not to lose that. And, and I was talking to a um, a family friend of mine who held a, a, held quite a high um, political office, um, and he was saying that it's really, really important not to confuse your your identity um, with your title. Um, I mean, and this individual, um, yeah, was in politics, and I think it was really interesting to see just how easy it is to to get sucked into the the accolades to get sucked into the dinners to get sucked into the invitations and forget that the real um value in our lives is actually the people that we are closest to at home um and my, my wife and I talk about this all the time um and I think it's in our in our job it's very easy to get caught up in all of that um and then give your like you say give the breadcrumbs to those that matter most and that has been a, a for me a sort of a profound shift or revelation if you like over the last couple of years is that um while I love what I do um somebody else will do it tomorrow if I'm not yeah yeah, yeah yeah um, so here, here's the, one of those litmus tests as well yeah yeah that that list, litmus test yeah. if, if you jumped onto a plane mm. and I sat next to you and I said g'day Matt I'm Paul yeah um what's likely to be my first question what do you do, Matt? Yeah. Now, how uncomfortable might you be if yeah. my question to you was, how do you reckon people would describe you as a human being? You might ring the bell and ask the, the air, air steward, could I get a different seat, please, because I think I'm next to the nutter. Yeah. You know, we, we actually have a whole yeah. uh, cultural milieu in which we're often, you know, defined by what it is that we actually do. And there's a protection there because sometimes we don't necessarily want to or feel comfortable saying mm. about who who we are, what we are, you know, who what our being is. Yeah. And the notion that my being is known in recognition between you as another, okay. you know, I mean, look, again, we, we, we could talk philosophically for a long time. Matt, perhaps it's a little bit off, off script. But, yeah, uh, I, 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 think, I think I think it is really... Um, I think it is really important. I think that the last thing I'll say on that is that it's 
it is actually freeing to know. I think that you're, um, for me, having that understanding that while what I do in my job is absolutely important and it does change lives and it is a privilege, the real impact I'm going to have is, for me, the two little girls that are currently sleeping and my wife who's in the other room um, and also my close family and friends. And I think it, if they're good, then I'm able to do my job and have the biggest impact I can with my students. And I think it's important to, to get those in the right priorities. And I think for me, um, it is a bit of a juggle sometimes. I remember the first time I stepped into a school leadership role, we just had a kid. And I um, uh, I remember that when I left the first time when I went back to go uh, to the classroom, back sorry, back into my school after paternity leave, I just sat in the car and burst into tears. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is uh, this is this is really difficult. But um, uh, Paul, I, I did want to ask you, um, mm. in your uh, okay, so going back to that identity question, so when somebody asks you, what do you do? How do you respond now? Yeah, that's a that's a, an excellent question. Um, uh if if i can just take a step back for a moment of course um, I've, I've mentioned uh, already that i i was a school principal for 11 and a half years and now i'm an academic and i work in a university a lot of the work that i do is with other people who either are in or aspire to be in formal positional leadership roles hmm. right? um they are as you would well appreciate beholden to a whole bunch of systemic and and government and and you know perceptual constraints and so what i do is i throw grenades to make some uh uncomfortable conversations because they can't love it and i can do that because i've done it but I'm now not beholden to those same constraints that they operate under. Fantastic. That's great. So, so I, um, you know, when I went off to do my doctoral study, um, I fully expected, Matt, that I would go back to being the principal of the school. And it was one of my dear um, now friends, she was one of my supervisors, she said, you can't go back to a school because you've got a, an, an ability to see some stuff and to say some stuff that both uh you know particularly leaders in in schools um understand and resonate and and appreciate um but you also have the practical experience of knowing where the burrs under the saddle are mm. for the, the you know the the politicians and the bureaucrats and, and various things because you've lived it you've tried to navigate that and so again i, I have this great joy of saying i am on your side to ask and say and do things that maybe you can't yeah. because of the political constraint within which you work. Yeah, wow. That's a profound privilege and yeah. one that I hold very, very close to my heart. I love that. And and why is your focus on um, principal leadership? Um, why have you decided, why did you decide in your PhD to focus on that? Um, my my PhD was very personally driven. Um, I'd been the principal of a school in a, um, you know, in New South Wales, which is the jurisdiction in which I've worked uh, mostly. Um, so our our you know regulatory environment, uh, Nessa, um, yeah, uh, and and then I went to a school that, as well as doing our Nessa curriculum, offered the three programs of the International Baccalaureate. Right. And I would say 
uh, I really want to do this. I'm thinking about such and such. And, and they come back and they say, no, 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 the IB won't let you do that. And I'd say, well, hang on. Who are these people? They, they live in Singapore. They live in Geneva. They live in Cardiff. Like, I'm in Sydney. Like, what's going on? And when I asked some of my colleagues, I got everything from it's the best thing in the world. I love the IB. If I could get rid of my local curriculum, I would, you know, right through to the the IB are fascists. They're imperialists. They, they're, like, they're so dominant. And I'm going, yeah. well, none of you are helpful. And yeah. so that's why I thought, well, I'm going to go and find out about myself. Right? Um, and that's what I did. Uh, right. The reason why that's extended is because for me, I'd done a long time in the job as being a principal. And the role of the principal is uh, demanding, it's challenging, it's lonely, it suffocates the life out of a lot of people. And it is, in the, in the, in the title of one of the most significant pieces of work in this country, the best job in the world with some of the worst days imaginable. Mm. It was one of the first cross-sectoral pieces of work that was done in this country. You know, but schools, and we saw this through COVID, Matt, like globally we saw this. What we lost by being in remote learning environments was the social lubricant of yeah. who we are as a community. Yeah. A young kid spent 13 years, mostly, 13 years of their life. Every day, parents, caregivers entrust to you mm. and to in this country over 300,000 teachers millions of children's lives every day and the ones who actually have a determination over the life of a particular community where you work is the principal so what sustains them what is it that fires them what is their vision of a good life and mm. how are they going about pursuing the implementation of that yeah i came to that so important from having done the work and going, you know, um, uh, let me give one one story, um, an appalling story of a student. Explicit photos have been taken years before and resurfaced in the school. And we had to involve the police. We had to do all the right and proper things that we did. And as I spoke to the young girl involved, well, she was a young lady by then, she turned 18, but the photos were taken of her when she was under 16. And so the reason why the police were interested was because that's, technically as it were at the time child pornography and she said i've tried to put my life together i think i'm going to get kicked out of my home tonight and i said to her would you like me to talk to your dad and she said yes i would yeah. now that is a privilege and a a distinct honor that is permitted very very few people other than a school principal yeah to bring that man in and say the way that you understand the life of your daughter is not the way that it is, is both heartbreaking and profoundly honouring to do. Mm. To engage in the brokenness and the um, reconciliation of that family, um, you know, probably, probably second only perhaps to those in religious communities that have the privilege, and even now we see, unfortunately, some of the poor stories that we hear. Um, that is something that very few people have the privilege of being able to do. And on the flip side of that, it's hard to continue to do that. You know, I did 11 and a half years before I went off to do my study. At the moment, 
the average service of principals across the nation is only around three years. Now, you can't do the sort of wholesale massive cultural change that we need in three years. Mm. You just can't. You need five, six, seven, eight years. And so sustaining those who are going to sustain the rich resource, and we saw the power of why we need schools when we lost them mm. during COVID. It, it reminds me of a conversation. Um, I've had the privilege of speaking a, a number of times with Dr. Adam Fraser, um, and mm -hmm. he was he's not a school principal, um, as you know, but he um, he said that the research that he's conducted shows that by far school principalship is the hardest job on the planet mm. um, and to have somebody who is not in that world acknowledge the complexity and the challenges and the distress of that role I think is um it, it just highlights how complex that job is um and I mean yeah uh, sorry what were you saying I didn't mean to cut you off. I was, I was going to give you a yeah. snapshot mm. picture for your readers for your listeners if you will those um somebody comes in and says to you i'm unhappy about this kid in my class i want you to deal with them and then a parent rings up to tell you that they are separating from their spouse and then the finance person says we've overblown the budget by whatever it is and then a staff member comes in to tell you they've been diagnosed with terminal cancer and that's the first hour of your day. Now, that doesn't happen every day, but that's a that's a, a vignette brought together of a whole bunch of those moments. And what's critical about each of those moments is that every single person in those moments deserves your presence. Mm. And you need to be present for them because that's the humanity of what makes schooling so significant. That's and it. when you have to switch and change so rapidly and sometimes you don't get the opportunity to re re recalibrate, you just have to go, oh, right, okay, uh, Matt's coming in to see me now. Sure, uh, Matt, what, what can I do for you? And then you just kind of like, you know, here's here's the disaster that's become my life. Mm. Um, you know, that sense of empathy, yeah, well. that sense of presence, that sense of awareness of what is what can I do to help you in this moment? Um, and then, as I say, as soon as you go, having told me how disastrous your life is, somebody just wants to complain about the timetable. And, you know, you've got 30 seconds to turn that around. And that's one of the things that is both the joy and also the enormous challenge that, that Adam talks about. I'm very familiar with Adam's work. And, and that, you know, he talks about that notion of that third space. Yeah. Of, you know, yeah. you need to be able to find a, a place to to process all of yeah. this and and sometimes sometimes the best place for that is close the door put your head in your hands put your hands on the desk and go yeah okay righto i'm back with it now transmission yeah. is restored let's go on with the next thing well, well i i found that um when i i had the privilege of working in a school really close to home um and I found that the spill from my school life into my personal life was a lot greater um, than when I had a commute. And now I'd, I'd probably have about a 45 minute commute. And that time for me each day 
is so precious. I don't have mm-hmm. the radio on. I might have some music on or a podcast or I'll just sit in silence or find a friend. And I found that that work of um, Dr. Adams just so trans- transformative that I did. I've, I've thanked him personally for it and said, look, it's really made an impact in my personal life and my professional life. Um, and it's really hard, isn't it? Because our life is, doesn't exist in these little silos where we can control our family, our friends, our relationships, our health, the 10,000 steps we're supposed to do a day and all of these things. It doesn't <laughs> exist in these little um, silos. And, and did you find that as well, Paul, when, when you're in that principal position? Um, how, was the, how did that impact the lives of those around you, whether it be your, your, your personal life or your, uh, what was the kind of the, the overflow of that life? What, that like, what was that like into other areas? Yeah, look, and I, I need to disclose that I spent, uh, you know, a number of years in boarding communities, and so they're even all the more intense. Yeah, because you're problems. you're living, you know, uh, hand yeah. in glove with with you know hundreds of people um, for mm. weeks at a time. But I'll give you one of the. Um, I'll give a statement, and then the, the little vignette that sits underneath it. Part of the ability to be able to respond adequately to that is the. The freedom and the the lack of guilt that your community lays upon you to be able to do that. Mm. And here's the story, and I think that will hopefully make all that statement fall into place. My wife, uh, I was at a school where we we had quite an extensive co-curricular um, program. It was actually the school where Pat Cummins, the current Australian cricket captain, was a student. Yeah. And uh, Pat had come back to talk uh, at an end of sports season dinner. And at that time, uh, my wife was going through a uh, significant medical um, procedure and uh, it didn't go quite as we expected. The day that the sport dinner was to be held, um the doctor said she's not going to be able to come out of hospital today, probably the next couple of days. And um, it was a bit of a distance from where we lived. And so I rang my deputy and I said, would you please, I mean, Pat had been a student at the school when I was the principal there, even though he'd, he'd left and was returning. And I said, would you please both thank Pat, but also say, look, you know, family circumstance, I'm not able to be there tonight. I apologize. I hope it all goes well four letters of parental complaint about my lack of commitment. Now, I'm never, never going to respond to that moment, but that's the complexity. You know, the expectation that some people had that they wouldn't even give me enough slack to be able to say I need to be with my ill wife. And so that's why, yes, it's a hard job, Yes, it's an isolated job, and yes, it's a lonely job, but that doesn't need to be compounded by a community that says, well, we just expect you to beat absolutely every single thing under the sun. Yeah. That is an unfair expectation. That is a societal issue. I've done a little bit more work recently, um, Matt, around the relationship between schools and families and, and particularly parents around expectations of how they support schools how they actually are part of building a positive learning community. Schools are not the solution to every 
every societal ill. You know, we, we, we can't just um, offload as, as parents and caregivers all of our own deficiencies and our own abdications onto schools and expect miraculously they'll wave a wand and all of a sudden any societal ill is going to be solved by whatever happens in your classroom or at your school because right? that has a, to a toll that it takes on those that do the work and it becomes more acute when families will go, I just expect the principal to be the solution to everything. Um, another little vignette, great old... Um, uh, extraordinary leader that this school's um, uh, that this country has produced. Uh, Father Chris Gleason was the headmaster of um, Saint Ignatius College at Riverview. Mm -hmm. um, very intensive boarding community. Uh, very intensive co-curricular experience of, of you know sport and music and various bits and things. Every Monday afternoon, he would go off to play golf. The boys knew it. The staff knew it. The family knew it. And I heard him once, and I must have been at, at the time, Matt, I, I, I reckon I want to say I was about 26 or 27 when I heard this story, maybe 28. And he said, every day, every Monday, I would drive down the driveway and the boys would say, have a great round of golf, Father Chris. And he'd say, thank you. And off he would go. And then he said, did I feel guilty? Every week. But did I go? every week yeah you know the notion of rebuilding there's a great piece of research that. that was done in the early 2000s national college of school leadership in the uk uh, called reservoirs of hope that we we give out leaders give out so much of themselves when they do their work but what are they replenishing in order that they can do that and my little maxim that i've developed over the last you know a little bit that i've been doing the kind of work that i do now is we need to care for ourselves so that we can care for that. those entrusted to our care. I think, I, Paul, that's that is that's so important and really, um, really challenging. I think uh, I'm I'm just coming out of the chaos of um, having. Uh, I'm sorry, my let me rephrase that. My wonderful children are four and six, so we're just out of that that chaos um and the conversations that we're having is what does um what does that self-care look like because i think mm -hmm. it's very easy to get caught up in that world and 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 one of the the, the conversations my wife and i have is exactly what you're saying is that you can't care for the lives of these little people or indeed the lives of your students if you're not well yourself um mm -hmm. and for me, that means going for the gym or going for a run or, but, but every single time I go, I, I feel guilty because I couldn't mm. be spending time with my kids. But then every time I come back, I go, I feel great. I'm a better parent. I'm a better dad. I'm a better uh, husband, but it, it's, it's challenging, isn't it? And I think that notion of having um, that self-care being your responsibility is, is, is really important, but Jesus hard, isn't it? It's hard when you've got all of the demands and you've got all of the, the expectations, but um, I, I think it's it's incredibly important. I mean, is there something, Paul, that that you are in your life you feel that you're currently under investing in, or an area that you feel like you would like to step up a little bit in terms of either your self care or a hobby or a, a passion that you have that you haven't given it as much? Yeah, look, uh, like like a, a great range of scholars and uh, and and uh, leadership gurus, I I convey what other people ought to do far better than I demonstrate it myself. 
It's um, far easier to give other people advice. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, I mean, I've, I've been through, I've been through the journey like we all have uh, of, of returning to some type of normalcy post-COVID. Uh, but because I work in a, um, a tertiary setting, that the, 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 the lines are more blurry mm. uh, and the discipline, I think my personal discipline varies significantly. Um, you know, there, there are moments when I get up, we've got two dogs and we got, you know, go for a walk with the dogs around the park. And then uh, other mornings I get up and I go, yeah, blah, let's just go for another uh, flat white with an extra shot and uh, start the day that way, you know. So so those types of, of disciplines. I think the other thing is that when, you're, when you've got a routine, what, one of the things that I think routines do is they give you a sense of... Um, um, prediction mm. you know when you don't have that mm. i'm not a person who who i think thrives in having no predictability yeah. in my day yeah. i think you know i spent you know 25 years in schools and you get used to the bell going mm. or you get used to it's it's you know whatever day it is or you know it's assembly or it's you know it's lunchtime or you know and without that i'm not as well equipped because you know as i say for 25 years i had it and and I'm not as personally driven about that. So that's an ongoing challenge to do that. I think one of the other areas that uh, I mean, I love I love cooking. Uh, I do most of the the you know cooking in our houses. Just my wife and I. We've got three adult sons. They've, they've grown and moved out. Um, and sometimes I invest too much time thinking about what I might be cooking instead of going, okay, I've got to get on and do my job. Um, now I'm also a believer. But Matt, that when you've got those tensions of priority, the issue isn't that you've got the tension. The issue would be if you resolve the tension. Mm. Because mm. if you resolve the tension in favour of work, then your family life suffers. If you resolve it all in the family end, then your work suffers. So yeah. keeping it in creative tension is not a bad thing to do. If we yeah. lose the tension, I think that's a loss. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more, Paul. And I think the for me, having those sort of restricted time frames, I think is really important because it means like in many ways, I can't wait for inspiration. I just have to get it done. You know, mm. like I've got an hour. My kids are watching Frozen. Let's go. I've got to get it. Nora, the washing's going to get folded when they go to, you know what I mean? Like, and I think mm. it's, um, for me, it's been such a shift in priorities having young kids. Um, mm. Like I said, talked about this before we hit record, but not only the fact that our, um, that it's personal now because my one of my wonderful daughters is in is in the end of kindergarten, another one is starting very shortly. So this idea of um, investing into the profession for me is really personal because I've mm. got skin in the game. Um, mm. But it's also, I think, really important, like I said, to understand that... Um, we need to make sure that we are um, we have our priorities in place, if that makes sense. Um, and like you're saying, to know who will be at your funeral is morbid as it sounds, but it's I think really important. Yeah, look, uh, you know, and and as you're experiencing as a father yourself, um, I, I have a um, a grandson. My oldest grandson is in in kindergarten this year. Right. And you know, one of the things that I would often say when I was doing undergraduate. Uh, tutoring and uh, a bit of teaching, I would say I want you, you know, is 
university students are all, you know, gung-ho and they want to do this, that, and the other thing. And I would say, I'm not interested in what you want to do. I'm interested in are you going to be a teacher who's going to inspire my grandson? Love it. That's that's my goal. Love it. And I think the more that we experience parenthood, um, you know, grandparenthood, I've now got three grandchildren. And, uh, you know, there's a really profound sense. Of, and I think that's a part and parcel of what this journey of life is about. That The beingness has become more rich to me as well because I couldn't understand what they're likely to experience by the time they finish school. Yeah. Yeah, I did a, a conference presentation earlier this week. Yes. Um, in, in 2007 was when the iPhone was released. Yeah. Yeah, that's 16 years ago. Yeah. Right? How many generations of students yeah. have gone through school yeah. where that's just been an assumed tool that we have in our world? Now this year, the right. lather is all about generative uh, AI. So in for your daughter coming into kindergarten in this year, yeah, what will she be experiencing oh. when she's doing her matriculation, her HSC? Yeah. Her VCE, her QCAT, whatever it is, wherever you, whatever jurisdiction you find, yeah. Matt, when she is in year 12, her yeah. final year, what is likely to be the educative experience? Well, yeah. we don't know. No but I hope that what we do know is that there is some essence of what does it mean to be human and what I love that. does it mean to be in relationship with one another? I love that. And my uh, daughter found my driver's license the other day. It had fallen out of my wallet. And she said, Daddy, what's this? And I said, oh, it was a driver's license. And she said to me, oh, will I have one of those when I learn to drive? And I had a moment and I thought, you may never learn to drive. Mm. You may never be operating a car. It will potentially be self-driving. And I had this moment <laughs> and I went, oh, my goodness. Um it, it's. I think I was looking through your um, your slides, which you very generously shared from your your conference this week, mm -hmm. and it was looking exactly at that, looking at the power of AI and what the future can hold for our profession. And part of me was terrified, but also really inspired, and it really made me think about some of those qualities which we need to be instilling into our teachers and our school leaders today to prepare our kids for the future, because it is a landscape that we we cannot even comprehend. But mm. I think thinking about that, Paul, what, what are some of those qualities which you think we will need as educators in the next 10, 20, 30 years' time? Um, will it be, um, sorry, I, I won't uh, take away your thunder, but will it be um, some of the skills that we've taught teaching them now or do you think it's going to dramatically change? I, I actually think that we have become more acutely um needy of uh existential social relational yeah. skills yeah um you know I, I i could go on to a bit of a philosophical rant which which i won't for the sake of both time and <laughs> part of you your, your listeners but um you know one of the landmark journeys of the 20th century was a great loss of hope you know, we journeyed through, you know, end of 19th century Friedrich Nietzsche mm. into the 20th century World War One, depression, Nazism, atomic bomb. It's no wonder by the time we get to 1953 that Samuel Beckett in Waiting for Godot just goes, just hang around. 
You know, the, the, the opening line of Albert Camus, The Outsider, mother died today, or was it yesterday? You know, who, who doesn't even know when their mother dies? You know, doesn't even have the emotional regulation mm. about that and this, this sense of loss that's there. By the time we got to the postmodern philosophers of the, the 80s and 90s, we're kind of going anything works, anything is okay, whatever it is that, that, that makes you, you know, work together. Well, no, I actually think now there's a great, great philosophical debate around what's called post-critical theory. Mm-hmm. You know, critical theorists were, oh, this is bad and this is what, you know, whether you call it post-colonial stuff, whether you talk about black, uh, you know, critical race theory or various things like that. The, the, the notion that we can, everybody can pull something down. Everybody can blow something up. But post-critical theory says we've still got to have something that actually provides some positive opportunity, yeah, some hope. Yeah. And I think more than ever, yeah, let's look at what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks, both in our own nation and geopolitically. We're saying, is this, is this where we are? Is this what we really want? And as we get very, you know, lather ourselves into a formulation of joy about AI, let's keep in mind that there are hundreds of millions of kids for whom this is a vast horizon mm-hmm. still some way away. Mm. And so there are equity challenges still. Yeah. And fundamentally, it's not the notion of just, you know, the, the climate change activists talk about there is no planet B. Right? That's very significant. But do we want a planet A where we can't stand to live with one another? Mm. I'm not quite sure about that. Yeah. And yet there are many visions that have been dismissed or derided for whatever reason. But we now have a generation of young people coming through saying, why would I? Why do I need to keep putting one foot in front of the next? I think there's something profound about who we are as humanity that says we want to put one foot in front of the next. Absolutely. But we're asking ourselves the question, to what end? Yeah. I think that's a good question to ask. But when we go, whatever end you feel like, I think we've now come to the point of saying, not quite sure that that's the answer that we're looking for. Mm. It's... It, it, it's so true, and I think um, there's never been more of a need for um, great, thriving schools and a, a, an education a, educational system that empowers students to be who they are, who they are, think critically, think creatively, and 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 work together. I think it's. I look around the world and I see what happen is happening, and I think, geez, like, yeah, there's a lot of work to do, but I do have hope. Um, I think I, I get to work with some phenomenal young people um, every day. And I think, yeah, there's hope there, which I think is really reassuring. You know where I reckon is one of the most insightful critiques of our contemporary culture? What? The recent Barbie movie. <laughs> and if you haven't seen it or if your listeners haven't seen it, may I commend it to you? Yeah. Because I think it goes right to the heart of this notion in such a confusing um, multiple set of questions that we're asking about who we are as both individuals and as community. Mm. I think it says some profoundly important things about identity, about relationship, about human value, about dignity 
in ways that actually cut through a lot of the noise that we hear in in some of the you know other avenues that we have so yeah that's my recommendation i haven't seen it but i i do need to see it matt what I, how did we get this far through the conversation you tell I me know, i know i know i think movie? i've just found the title for this podcast somehow we have to uh, sort of, <laughs> uh life-changing lessons from the recent barbie movie um yeah, uh, paul the um australian college of educational leaders has had a profound impact um on me professionally. Um, I would just love you to spend a little bit of time unpacking your association with this wonderful organization and what is your current role with the ACEL? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, I, uh, at the beginning of this month, uh, I stepped into the role as the New South Wales branch president. Mm-hmm. Um, this year is the 50th anniversary of Gosh. the organization. And uh, we celebrated that at our annual conference in Brisbane in September. Yeah. Uh, why I joined it was when I was a uh, young and emerging, um, perhaps deluded aspirational leader, uh, I thought, who are some wise heads that I need yeah. to connect with so that I can learn from? And so I joined probably in the, the mid-late 90s, uh, last century, uh, ACEL. And at the time, you had such luminaries, you know, Patrick Diagnan, Brian Caldwell, Frank Crowther, you know, these, these people who had such a significant impact on our uh, profession in Australia. You know, they came out of a lot of the genesis of the association came out of the most unglamorous <laughs> institution, uh, the 1970s University of New England in Armidale. You know, but yet there was this this constellation of genii that came together to say school leadership is not about administration. It's it's not about management, necessary parts of the job as it is, but it's about something different. It's about something more. And so from those early, excuse me, those early beginnings has grown an association that in not just Australia, but the South uh, South Asia Pacific region, yeah, is one of the richest and most comprehensive professional associations of its type. Yeah, it is. I describe it as a matrix organisation: early childhood, primary, secondary, tertiary, and then you go government school, Catholic system, non-government school. Yeah, everybody's at the table. I love that. Yeah. And that is the only association of its type. You name me just about any other association and it won't meet those criteria. Mm. And so it brings together people who, Amazing. regardless of whether they're in a, a challenging socioeconomic community like uh, a school that you described or a very high fee, you know, highly resourced, you know, non-government school, around the same table actually going, you know what? Yeah. I got the same issues. Yeah. Let's talk about that. What can I learn from you? How can we learn together? And, and there's a richness that's there. Okay. It's cross-jurisdictional in the sense that in Australia, it's in every state and territory. And so it's not beholden to its own idiosyncrasies that there are in, a, in, in, in you know, New South Wales or in Victoria or in the Northern Territory. It kind of takes a broader view and says, yeah. what's actually important for us as a profession? I love it. And that's one of the richnesses that it provides. 
provides yeah. that ugly. No other yeah. collection of uh, associations does. Yeah, and and I, uh, Paul, I'm I'm so proud to be associated with the um uh, with the ACL, and I think it's just an incredible. It for me, it's just been a breath of fresh air professionally um, because I get to, like I said, learn from people like yourselves and people from in the independent sector and the Catholic sector and, and, and to sit at the recent um, awards in Sydney was a huge privilege. And, and I know that, that the um, sec the secretary of education, uh, Murat Drizda um, received a, I believe it was the Peter Brock Memorial Medal. Paul Brock, yeah. Uh, Paul Brock, sorry. Um, and it was really amazing to see him standing on stage with people from all other sectors of our wonderful educational community. And it was a really, yeah. um, it was a real proud moment for me to not only be associated with the Department of Education, but also to be associated with the ACEL and, and to see how we can all learn from each other. Um, it's a, for those people that who are listening that haven't heard of the organization or haven't thought about signing up as a member, we will put links in the show notes because it has been it's the best value for money. It's better than a Netflix Flix subscription, I reckon. It's a bit <laughs> I'll take right. that back to our executive. Yeah, that's right. Put that, on a, put that on a T-shirt. But it, it's really, um, it really is transformative. And I think the, um, the, the the newsletters and the updates that I get from you guys are, it's, yeah, I, I see the, uh, the, I see it in my inbox and go, yes. And I'll sit down and have a read. It's really it's really wonderful. So I, I congratulate you um, and also the organization for the amazing work um, that that you're all doing. It's, um, yeah, truly, truly uh, exceptional. So thank you for that. Well, and, and look, that's that's very generous and very kind. But one of the other joys about the association is that it's a, it's a voluntary association. Mm. It, it thrives because of people like you. Yeah. And because of other people that say, I, I want to make this an association of which... Yeah. Uh, we can be proud and we're doing some really good things. Uh, on November the 7th, uh, we're running our first middle leadership conference. And again, that, yeah. you know, this is this is an area that uh, is desperately in need of support. Um, yep, the association nationally brings luminous stars to Australia from time to time. But this is, an, this is a, a conference, a whole day conference built of homegrown people who are in the field sharing their stories this is what I'm doing. This is what's been important for me. This is the learning that I've had. Let's share that together. And mm. that collegiality is that. one of the hallmarks of the organisation. It's not just the the you know bright shiny stars with 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 uh, spotlights on top of them. Yep, anybody can spend a few bucks and bring someone from overseas. But it's the grassroots I agree. who are doing the work and saying, this is really significant. What can I learn from you? Matt, tell me what's going on in your school. I really need to learn from you. Here's some ideas. I don't know. Maybe they'll work for you. Not sure. Tell me what you think. Get back to us and, and let's have a bit of a chat and ongoing conversation. That's the richness. Yeah. And and I love the um I love the generosity of our profession. Um I think it's really it's really inspiring. And I think the um, the fact that I get to sit down and have conversations with people like yourself and I get to hear people at a conference and invite them on and read their book and say, hey, can we have a chat? I think just goes to show the 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 willingness for everybody in our profession to contribute to um, uh, the quality of learning outcomes for our students. And it's I'm always so amazed at that. And um, yeah, it's it's a wonderful reminder. I think when you go to a ACEL event, you see people just having a chat and going, oh my gosh, 
you're struggling with that as well. I've got, I'm from this sector, I'm from that. And so it's a really, um, a really powerful organization. And um, I did want to be, uh, Paul, I did want to be respectful of your time. Um, I'm aware that it's getting uh, close to 9.30 on a school night. Um, I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to get, I'm, I got plenty of stuff to say. Okay. We might need to do this again at some point. I, I think we definitely will need to do a round two. And I think um, just in closing, Paul, uh, what are you optimistic about um, for our profession? I mean, we've talked about a couple of the challenges um, and also some of your concerns, but what are the things that you are looking forward to and optimistic about in the teaching profession? You highlighted one of the most significant ones in that we are a generous profession. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of debate going on around issues related to terms, conditions and employment and teacher shortages and, and various bits and pieces. They're the challenges at the moment. But yet, regardless of that, and we saw this through COVID, mm. flexibility, the responsiveness, the generosity, the, the expansive heart that educators have, that's why, you know, does, do teachers want to pay rise? Yes. Is anyone going to knock it back? No. But it's actually not the thing that drives us as a profession. Mm. What drives us as a profession is that we are gifted with the privilege, the custodianship of future generations. Yeah. Yeah. And that is what I remain as undyingly optimistic about because, you know, I don't have a figure, but I'm going to call it 95, 98% of teachers want that. Yeah. You know, they don't get up out of bed in the morning and go, oh, okay, just got to run the stuff again and, you know, do this. They genuinely have this idea that something is going to be good for students that's going that. to help them grow. You know, that. one of the other, I think, profoundly significant things, and I'd have to be really, really blunt. Here's a grenade for you, if you like, Matt. I think a lot of commentators don't appreciate the fact that most teachers recognise that the value of their work won't be realised for 10 or 15 years. Yeah. You know, the, the media commentary and, and academic commentary is about, you know, this is the thing that's got to happen in the next two, three years. You know, our PISA results are up the top. Blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And most teachers know that what they do with the students entrusted into their care in 2023 may not find realisation until 2035. Mm. And it's that long-term commitment to say, I am helping cultivate young lives that I will not see the realisation of. And my task is to help whilst they're entrusted into my care. You know, take the horticultural analogy. Love that. Right? If you're going to plant a seed or water a young seedling or help the young seedling grow up, then just because you water it, you go, well, look, the thing hasn't hasn't popped through the soil. It's, it's useless. No, 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 because we know that it's going to take, you know, weeks, months mm. until it, it, you know, blossoms um i've got a lemon tree that i've had for seven years and this is the first year that i've had a fruit on it gosh what if gosh. i pulled it out after five years time mm. like wow. it needs that time and that's why the richness of education it keeps me eternally optimistic i am actually optimistic about a lot of stuff to do with ai 
I think there's some tremendous opportunities to get rid of a lot of the inefficiencies, to automate a lot of the inefficiencies that we've got. But at the same time, we've got to still be asking ourselves the question, it's a tool. It's yeah. a great tool. It's a powerful tool, but it is not the education itself. Yeah. You know, Abraham Maslow, we're all very familiar with, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But one of the great quotes from Abraham Maslow was, if you only happen to have a hammer, you tend to see every problem as a nail. Mm. And so it's one tool to do one thing, but it is not the essence of what it is to be human. Yeah. And fundamentally, we see still writ large in some of our geopolitical challenges that we've got, this, this need for us to be caring, to be empathetic, to be optimistic, to be um, expansive in our vision that says we want to include you. Um, I am of a vision, and some people won't necessarily share this vision, I'm of a vision that says two of the greatest um, qualities that we lack and we need to cultivate even further are grace and forgiveness, being able to live together with one another. I'm broken. We're all broken in our own special ways and being able to say, yet yeah, you're still valuable. You're yeah. still important. You're still someone for whom I should care. That is what continues to keep me going. Dr. Paul Kidson, it has been an absolute pleasure. And I think uh, that is a wonderful place, I think, to um, to conclude this part of our discussion uh, this evening. It has been um, an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you. Um, and I've seen you speak um, at the ACEL um, on a number of occasions and your passion and your commitment uh, to our wonderful profession uh, is is so evident um, uh, in your language and in your posture and in your tone. It's so wonderful and so refreshing to um, to get to hear somebody uh, like yourself talk about our amazing profession. And I couldn't thank you enough for your time this evening. Thank you so much. It's been a great honour and thank you for the extraordinarily important work that you do, Matt, in bringing a whole bunch of us together to have some conversations. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.